I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm recording from and pay my respects to the Kamaregu people and their elders, past and present. I also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from. Hi, my name is Sarah Malik and I am your host for the SBS Book Club. This week's book club pick is Women and Children by acclaimed author, activist, poet and historian Tony Birch. Tony Birch's best-selling novel, The White Girl, was the winner of the 2020 New South Wales Premiers Award for Indigenous Writing and shortlisted for the 2020 Miles Franklin. What I love about Tony Birch is not only does he explore big themes like the impact of dispossession and the stolen generations on First Nations families, but he does it through characters who are filled with great love and tenderness. He's also a master storyteller, leaving you on the edge of your seat right until the last page. Welcome to the show, Tony. It's such an honour to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. So, Women and Children, your latest book, Tony, is told through the eyes of a young boy, Joe Clooney. It's 1965 and Joe is living in a working class suburb with his mum, Marion, and his sister, Ruby. And there's a real innocence about Joe as he confronts the violence of the nuns at school who administer the strap. And then when his auntie Una turns up to the door, bruised and confronting domestic violence in his own extended family. So in the book, we see, you know, the violence against women and children that is so normalised in society. We see it through Joe's eyes and how warping, horrifying and confusing it really is. Was that a deliberate decision for you to situate the book through a young child's eyes? It was. And what I wanted to do is that Joe, although he is a mischievous child at school, he's also a very loving child and he has wonderful influences in his life. His mother, Marion, but particularly his grandfather, Charlie, who is a, a wonderful man who looks after Joe and spends a lot of time with him. So I wanted to contrast that with the external pressures on him, which do come firstly through his experience of going to a Catholic school and the the violence of the nuns and the violent language that the church uses to to create fear in children. And then, of course, when his auntie Una comes to stay at the house and Joe sees the physical evidence of violence on her body, it, it is shocking to him. So for me, the contrast is to say that this is a very loving family, a, a, a beautiful family life that he has, but these external forces of both masculine violence and the language of the church have a very negative impact on his life. You do dedicate the book to the women in your life and you write, women and children is a work of fiction. It is not the story of my own family, but it is motivated by our family's refusal to accept silence as an option in our lives. And the cover of the book is a real photo of your own family members. Can you tell us about it and why you decided to feature it as the cover? I mean, the first part is to say, of course, this specific story is a fictional story. The issues in the story, though, do reflect my upbringing of growing up in a very violent household, my father being a very violent person, and growing up at a time in the suburb of Fitzroy when there was a lot of domestic violence and living with that terrible secret of knowing that this was happening all around you, um, women, of course, suffering, but also your friends at school. But these were crimes that, that couldn't be spoken aloud. So I wanted to address that issue. In regard to the photograph on the front, it, it's a photograph of 
my oldest sister, Debbie, and her first Holy Communion. So she's wearing her Holy Communion veil. And she's with my auntie, um, my mother's younger sister, who was also my godmother, who died very young. She died in her 20s from, from cancer. And it's a beautiful photograph, but I suppose in reflection of the, the role of the church in the, in the novel, it's also quite haunting as an image, not only because of the, the death of my auntie, but again, thinking of the, the lives of, of women and girls and children generally um, around me as a kid. So I wanted to both honour those women, but yeah, there is clearly a level of sadness with that honouring as well, both in regard to what women are dealing with and of course the, the, the death of my, my godmother. Women, especially matriarchs, they drive a lot of your books and they're often in situations where, you know, the world is kind of throwing everything at them, but they not only survive, they thrive and they're never victims. You know, they're often really funny women, they're gutsy, they have a real agility and no nonsense style about them. And they often kind of even outmaneuver and outwit their foes, despite having all the cards against them. And so I guess, what do you find most interesting about women? Well, I think in the, in regard to the women that I've grown up around and, of course, then thinking of um, the two female characters or the adult characters, um, Marion and her sister Una, and even thinking of the role of, of Ruby, the 13-year-old girl in this novel, it is true that women that I knew and the fictional women in this book, they need to have a great sense of ingenuity, a great survival techniques because really their only ability to survive the difficulties of their life, be that, you know, around potentially poverty, be that around their independence or be that around threats from men or the behaviour of men, um, they have to really find strength and they really can't rely on others to, to look after their problems. Yeah, Marion realises that wherever she seeks help to stop what's what's happening to her younger sister, Una, um, she approaches the, the, the parish priest. She talks to her father, who's a very gentle man, but in some ways inept because he is totally nonviolent. And she even approaches her ex-husband, who is a local career criminal. And none of those men can really come to her aid or and her sister's aid. And in the end, um, they have to really find ways to, to deal with the, the situation themselves. So I suppose that reflects my memory and experience of women of being a central force in my life, but also being great survivors. And it's not surprising that the 13-year-old girl, Ruby, and again, thinking of the image of my older sister on the cover of the novel, I think of my older sister as very much my protector as a child. And my older sister really took it upon herself to become the sort of, I suppose, the carer and protector of her, her younger siblings in, in the street. And that memory and that influence is really central to my my upbringing. Yeah, I think this book will really resonate with anyone who's loved anyone or supported anyone who's going through domestic abuse and how painful and frustrating and frightening it can be. And in the book it says, Ray Lomax had reduced Una to a state of worthlessness, a deep sense that nobody would care for her, let alone stay by her side and risk being confronted by a monster. And in Una, we do see that that pride, that brokenness, that fear, and that isolation she's made to feel from family and friends. 
How important was it for you to show that tug and that complexity? Her backstory, although brief, we understand that she was quite a feisty younger sister, quite independently minded. But the humiliation, there is an issue when being a child living in a house where there was violence and and being subject to violence, the humiliation you feel is psychological. It's interesting and somewhat tragic. The the physical violence is something that you get over. Uh, In other words, literally that, you know, if you get, if you get hit, well then, you know, after a while, you know, the pain has gone away, but the humiliation psychologically is what lasts. And I think in Una's case, I wanted to convey that it's really that humiliation that, that she suffers that that affects her and her decision making. There is, though, I think, more than a hint that when she does, after an initial um, incident of physical abuse, she does return to Ray, um, the man who has physically abused her, but she invents a story that she loves him and everything's going to be okay. And that may be, in fact, what she believes on the surface, but she doesn't want her sister or her nephew and niece to be either witness to or be subject to his violence. So in returning to an abusive man, part of what she is doing is to try and protect her family from that same abuse. And in that sense, she be, she becomes a, a bit of a sacrificial lamb um, to return to, to, to the, this terrible man. Now, that's not a weakness. It's not about her being a victim in that you know that negative sense, it's about her having very limited decisions that she can make. And we've got to remember now we know that things are still unbelievably problematic for women. In 1965, there was no such thing as a women's refuge. There was no funding to support women at all. And in fact, there would be very few voices who would listen to women who were suffering abuse. So what's clear in the novel is that whatever is happening to Una shouldn't be spoken about publicly and everyone that her sister Marion approaches for help regards what's happening to Una as a very private matter. So in other words, it's between a man and a woman. It's not something that really can be impacted upon by any outsiders. And so when I grew up, Again, there was that silence around violence, and even if you witnessed it in the street, or or if you saw the uh, yeah the evidence of it in the bruises on, on a woman's face, you weren't supposed to point, you weren't supposed to ask, and you certainly weren't supposed to talk about what everyone everyone knew it was happening, but no one would speak openly about it. Yeah, and even Marion's ex-husband said, "I don't want to interfere in a domestic." No, and and uh, yeah, where ex-husband also has business interests that he wants to protect. It's that it's not his business. Again, growing up, a sort of a rule that you grew up, you, know, you never talk to police, you, you can't rely on the police, you never talk about what's happening in the family, outside the family, and you never interfere what's happening in someone else's family. So it's in the novel through the character Joe of going to the swimming pool and seeing the bruises on other kids' body that you know is evidence of being, yeah, maybe hit with a belt or, or something else, but you wouldn't point at it or you certainly wouldn't ask that child where the bruises came from because you knew, but also the, you know, it would be embarrassing to, to expose that. Joe and his auntie Una is this really wild-spirited, rebellious young girl and Joe is this really intelligent, curious, thoughtful boy and these forms of racist and sexist violence that are kind of um, 
they're inflicted with, its purpose is to kind of break that spirit, you know, in these people. But, you know, they resist because the family has this love and this laughter and this togetherness and you're able to kind of express the light and shade. Was that important for you? I think this is really important. So there are a couple of issues that you raise there that are vital. So this is um, in a strongly working class family and in a family that I deliberately wrote that we know that there is a past in this family, uh, which is about Joe's grandmother and that grandmother being an orphan or someone who's been removed from family. So I wanted it deliberately to be ambiguous. You know, she's likely an Aboriginal woman, but she's certainly a woman of colour. And the reason I left it that way is that that's why a lot of us in the 60s knew or didn't know of our past. There were, again, sort of secrets in some families. The other issue that you raise, it's important. This is clearly about a working class community. Some people may sometimes raise the issue, well, you know, domestic violence is not only an issue of the working class. We know that is absolutely true. So domestic violence affects women across all classes and ethnicities. People often said, well, do you think this demonizes the working class? And I don't think it does because I think it's a very full and humane picture of, of people's lives. Secondly, that I couldn't write fiction about the middle class. I just don't know how to do that or I I think I would probably write very shallow, stereotypical um, characters. So I I write for a reader who understands, yes, I am exposing uh, an aspect of my culture, but I hope I'm doing it in a way that is intelligent and and sensitive. There's a chapter in this or a scene that I love and it's when the two sisters go through their record collection, they put the music on and they dance and they sing. I didn't put that in there as, as light relief. And when you grow up in a family where you may be impacted about on directly or indirectly by violence, you may be impacted on as I was by by poverty. You don't live your life in misery, sitting around waiting for the next whack on the head or the next handout from charity. I remember my childhood as being loving in many ways, particularly amongst women. So when I wrote the scene of the two sisters dancing to a um, Beatles song and then they play an old record, um, K-Star's Wheel of Fortune, one of my favourite childhood songs, I have strong memories of the women in my life being so intimate and happy with each other. And the other aspect of that that is vital is that I think people would pick up both in that scene with the women holding on to each other the scene where um, Ruby cleans her Auntie Yuna's body, um, other scenes, is it's also very physical and very sensual in a non-sexual way. And that was very important. Um, the fact that you see the bruises on a woman's body and then that body is cared for in a loving way by a 13-year-old girl, that was to me was probably the most important scene in the novel because it's to show that the younger girl... Yeah, she, she won't look away from that violence and she wants to do something loving for her auntie to rectify it. And, you know, sadly or not, I, I, I remember my older sister as a girl doing my mother's makeup for her to, so she could hide a bruised eye. My sister would say, oh, mum, I'll make you look beautiful. And she would put makeup on my mum's face to hide a, a black eye. So that is a very loving um, exchange. That is such a big part of your books, the touch 
and the body, like mm -hmm. the, the way which um, the characters co-sleep with each other. And even in The White Girl when Odette is washing Sissy's hair, yeah. which really reminded me of like in, in South Asian culture, like often women will oil their daughter's hair and mm -hmm. it's something very so beautiful and loving about that experience. I feel like you treat everyone in your book with such honour and care. It's a really beautiful book actually about the ways in which people love each other. Yeah, and and yeah. Look, I think I like the way that you pick up the um, comparison to the the bath scene in in the White Girl. As short as that scene is, you know, when when Sissy and um, Odette are together, and Sissy says, "I love this Nana. It's my favorite part of the week," and and Odette says, "I love it too." It is about that physicality, and I suppose from my perspective, it's about the opposite of physical touch being violent. It's about physical touch being very loving and necessary so that I know in mainstream Western culture, um, particularly Anglo culture, physically touching is sometimes frowned upon and I, I find that very odd. So a related story which certainly is central to the white girl, so in a, a scene later in that book when Wanda an Aboriginal woman asks the older Aboriginal woman Odette to hug her. That comes out of knowing that many Aboriginal people who were taken from family as children placed in institutions, when they are interviewed later in life or when they're reflecting later in life of that childhood experience, the most common response they give is what they miss most is to be held in a loving way and to be touched in a loving way. And I think those gestures can be really subtle. They Sometimes you can miss them if you if you're not looking. So yeah, it is about wanting to convey love in this family um, through the relationship between women and between women and children. The other aspect, of course, is that in Charlie, who is um, Joe and Ruby's grandfather, he is a very loving person also. And I think what I found in writing the book that I didn't really discover until the end, so, so Charlie and his friend Ranji, they're wonderful men, so I wanted to, I did want to write another where there are men of real value, but in some ways they are they are inept and not in a negative way because when there is a moment in the book where it might require Charlie to act with violence of his own to protect his family, he is not equipped to do that. And because him and Ranji are men who are basically nonviolent, they don't fit into the masculine culture. No, and therefore there's little they can do proactively. But there's so much that they do by choosing love. So a lot of the characters, they've had so much thrown at them, but Char, despite his experiences, he chooses love. And that is a force field that Joe is surrounded with, this real love, and he's kind of cosseted in love despite these kinds of societal shards that are that are kind of coming at him. And this grandparent love is is a big kind of theme in, in your books, you know, with Sissy, with Char. So I was wondering if you could speak about your own experience with grandparent love and, and your own grandmother. We, we always rented houses, but wherever we lived, my grandmother lived next door or when I was very young, we shared the same house. So I was very lucky that my grandmother didn't pass away until I was 40. Um, so I spent a lot of time with her and um, really valued that that love of my grandmother. My grandfather had died when, before, well before I was born, when my own mother was only 12. 
but my grandmother, she liked men, so she always had a boyfriend. <laughs> and one of her boyfriends in particular, Jack, um, he, were, he was a, a junk man, and I don't mean um, as in drugs. He collected um, street rubbish you know, and um, scrap metal and s- stuff like that, and he used to always give me books. I think he'd spent time in prison when he was young. He's a very loving person. And the other influence on me is that, and it comes out through the character Ranji, is that my great-grandmother, who I was lucky to know until I was 13, my great-grandmother has a remarkable history of um, of after she was divorced from her husband, she fell in love with a man, Bhutta Khan, who was from the Punjab, um, and he was a street seller. He sold cloth and other stuff on the street. And my great-grandmother went to um, the Punjab in 1920 and lived in the Punjab for 10 years, came back in 1930 with five children. Oh, my gosh. So that my great-uncles and aunts, who I knew all my life, and some of them only passed away in the 90s, and I still have cousins. So when I was a kid, I would go to their house, which was across the fence from our house, over the back fence. And it was this w- wonderful mix of sort of Anglo, Punjabi family and other families would come there and so they actually would pray there. They, had, they would pray there. So my great-grandfather by marriage, um, Bhutta Khan, was a remarkable man, very peaceful, um, quite devout. Unlike most men I knew, he didn't drink or smoke. Um, and I wanted to pay tribute to to him, but also to that impact in my family that, like he suffered a lot in Australia so that he came to Australia in 1894 before Federation, but when he wanted to go home to Punjab to visit anyone or to take my great-grandmother back, he had to get an exemption from the infamous dictation test. And I've got all of his um immigration department records and it, it's quite humiliating to to read about the level of deference that he had to convey so he had people write testimonies that he was a good man and people writing that he was as good as a white man and that sort of level of humiliation it really when you read that that a man who never was a non-violent man a very good man the only way that he could be, um, that he could project value was for someone to write he was good as a white man rather than he was a, a, you know, a dark-skinned man. So he is um, all through that character, Ranji, in this. When I was reading Ranji, um, there was actually the way that you phrased his sentences reminded me of older Desi men in my own mm. life, like that kind of formal British yeah, as well, yeah. but the subsequently. Yeah. And I felt the cadence when I was reading it. And the South Asian Muslim characters in your books, I absolutely love because they have this solidarity with the First Nations characters yeah. because of their shared experiences of racism and exclusion. And I see that also in Yusuf Khan as well in, yeah. in The White yeah. Girl. Yeah, it was like almost... Yusuf Khan makes a cameo and then turns into <laughs> Ranji Khan when he gets more game time. That And I love that formality because um, that I know that um, with Bhutta that he suffered a lot of racism in the street, like really derogatory terms, shocking. Yeah, the M word was used a lot in relationship to him. And he would say, excuse me, I'm a British subject. So... <laughs> 
and sort of come to attention. Um, but in a way of saying, you know, it was sort of giving a finger at the same time. And um, he was, I think, someone who, I don't think he was a passive person at all, but realised the only way that he would survive the negativity and have a loving life was unfortunately to turn the other cheek or to, to, yeah, he used to say, oh, I'd go deaf. So just ignore the, the comments. There is this interesting theme in the book of the objects almost play an important role in the book as characters. Like there's the money box and there's the revolver and they have this kind of vital role in the book. And you talked before about your relationship with objects through op shops and secondhand stores that you spent a lot of time rifling through as a kid. Can you tell me a bit about your relationship with objects and also these objects in the novel? Yeah, so generally objects are very important to me so that if you were to see my writing desk at home, it's surrounded by you know, pine cones, photographs, um, knickknacks that, you know, other people would regard as quite worthless that I can't even write if they're not there. So I, I do like the idea that objects often hold really profound stories. So it might be simply when you bought it, who, who you're with. So when I used to go up shopping with my grandmother, she would buy objects that weren't really worth anything materially, but she would conjure a story out of them. So she would justify the, uh, the purchase on the basis that they had this amazing story that she had just invented. So objects have always been important to me in the sense of the way that they carry story and hold story. Both Char and Ranji, who are both collectors, um, even though Ranji's more in, in it for strict business, they are both men who value what other people would throw away and discard. And Char, being an ex-street um, sweeper, has collected so much stuff. I think in this book, the object though that is most important to me, and I think that I wasn't trying to create any controversy and there is a true story behind it, but just quickly, on the money box, um, the money box is one of these terrible money boxes. They were, they were probably all over the world. We had them in every classroom at school. They're a metal money box with a, a black-faced boy, but almost a caricature, yeah, big red lips. Um, and they would call the character Black Sambo and the kids in my class would, would yell at the statue to eat the coin. So you'd put a coin in the statuette's hand and that would create some sort of you know, physics of the weight of the coin, the hand would drop, the mouth would open and the hand would snap back and swallow the coin. So we were encouraged, of course, to feed the, the money box, raising money for, for starving children, whereas they, there was plenty of starving children in Fitzroy. They should have just give us the money directly. But I, I was horrified by that as a kid, the, the way that the other kids would scream at the, the money box. And in real life, and I know it seems odd to say this, my, I did paint my face black in class you did that? Yes, I okay, did Okay, because there is a scene in the book where Joe, who gets teased for the colour of his skin, he paints his face black yeah. to look like the boy on the school's charity yeah. box. And he says, he did it because I like him and I thought it would be good for me to look the same. Yeah. Oh, it's based on a true story where we were told by the nun to paint a portrait of anyone. And most kids painted a blonde, blue-eyed, long-haired Jesus Christ, yeah, like a surfer surfer Jesus and I looked up at the front of the class and you know the the statuette was sitting there and I said I want to be him 
and I painted my face black. And yeah, when we think of yeah, blackface, it's very offensive to do that. I was aware of that when I was writing the novel. Again, as in real life, um, for doing that, I was subject to real violence from the nun of having my head placed in a bucket of water and what had my face scrubbed. And then I stole the statue. You stole the money box. Yeah, but we, and I, as in the case of the um, novel, I took the money out of it first, what was left there. So I stole the money box. And I didn't want the statue to be subject to that racism any longer, so I stole it. That's amazing. I had no idea that that was, because for me, that was actually one of the most powerful scenes in the book. Yeah, without knowing why, I understood that as a, an act of violence against the statue. I, I was in grade two, so it would have been about seven. I understood that. But to, it's interesting to this day, when I say I feel vindicated, when the nun acted towards me with such violence and, you know, held my head under water and I was really frightened, I, I don't think she was, she wasn't angry because, oh, this is blackface. I think she was angry because I exposed something. I've always felt that, that I exposed uh, hypocrisy in them putting money in the mouth of this statuette and all the boys, particularly the boys teasing. And, and you've got to remember making racist remarks when a lot of the kids in that year in that suburb are not white. Well, there's one scene where Grandad Char says of the money box and of, of him painting his face, he says, they can't have you liking the boy on the money box. He's their prize charity case and you're supposed to pity him and mm. feel sorry for him, not treat him like a friend or want to be like him. They couldn't cope with that. And I find it really similar to in The White Girl when Odette is being patronised by the white lady who she's making, you know, authentic Indigenous mm. art for. So there's this feeling of something very weird and extractive even in these kinds of helpful white people. And so was that something important for you to do, like not only kind of critiquing outright racism but also the more subtle, like the insidious racism of like white saviorism? It was to legitimate what the Catholic Church was doing, and also the patronage of, you know, so-called third world children would allow the church to have an innate sense of superiority over those people. I have to say that my experience of being a, a Catholic schoolboy and altar boy was entirely negative. And I think that if the only reason you believe in God is because you're too scared not to, there's there's something wrong. So I I, I I had absolute fear as a child that I would sin and die with, and therefore that I would go to hell and hell wasn't an imaginary place. Hell was a real place. Pain was eternal and it was unimaginably horrific. We were told that on a weekly basis. So, you know, it's not surprising that as a child I had an I had a absolute fear of death and when I used to get into bed at night, I used to think, yeah, I've st I haven't had a chance to get to <laughs> confession for a few weeks. So I have these sins. What happened if I die in my sleep? I'm going to go straight to hell. And so it, it's very scary. I mean, it's very, very scary. And that kind of like institutional violence, like it's not just the physical violence, it's the fear, it's the control, it's the whole kind of system of putting certain people in their place. And that's oh, yeah. something that you really kind of examine. I think my saving grace, and 
it's alluded to, I think, in the novel, is that I, if you imagine the church having a set of parables around sin, I had other parables, family stories. So family stories that themselves were um, relative moral tales but gave you another way to think about how to be a good person. And storytelling, therefore, in my family and in my writing, is a, is, it's almost like this is a, a parable of how to have a good life or a different life, and it's not relying on, on the church to, to give you guidance. If there's fear and control in, in a pe- person or place or institution, then you don't want to be there. That's not the right place no, to be. No. And there's an immense respect that you have for your characters and this idea that, you know, true spirituality and love involves equality, freedom and respect. When you think about it, whether it be Char, Ranji, Ruby to some extent, they're not, well, Char, he doesn't know if he believes in God. He's really damning of the church, but he says when he has a conversation with a priest, he hadn't given up on God yet. Ranji, toward the end of the book, when something happens, says, I don't think today is a good day to pray. Ruby's always hedging her bets. Yeah, she's very strategic about religion and and Joe is confused or frightened. Uh, Marion really is like my mum. She sent her kids to church but wouldn't go herself. Um, it's that it's not a it's not a book where I'm I want to conclude that people won't continue to think spiritually and behave spiritually, but it's something that is very complex in their life. So that I have to be quite honest and say that I stopped believing in a Christian God when I was a young teenager, but I can still go into St. Francis Church in Melbourne and light a candle for my grandmother, and I probably don't feel any more peaceful than when I do that. It's remarkable to go into a church when no one's saying Mass and to see individuals sitting quietly, so they're, they're using the church or the building reflectively, contemplatively, maybe dealing with grief. That space is something that the hierarchy of the church doesn't control. So I'm not anti-spirituality, and spiritual in any sense. I think I'm, it's a bit like you say, the, the controlling behaviours of institutions have, is very damaging, but I see people in that church when I go there who are clearly finding peace in that moment. So I, I, I wouldn't disrespect that. Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour because you are incredible. Your book is incredible. Everyone, please read it. And thank you so much, Tony, for spending the hour with me. Oh, thank you, Sarah. This has been lovely. Thanks for being part of the SBS Book Club. I'd love you to follow, share, rate or review the podcast if you're enjoying it. You can share your own thoughts and picks with the hashtag SBS Book Club. Next week for Book Club, we talk about love and what it means to be in love. And can you ever really know another person? We have author Yumna Kassab on her Miles Franklin shortlisted novel, The Lovers, exploring the relationship between expat Jamila and Amir, a man she meets in her family's village.